The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. They have the full power to enter you into any contract you want. They don't show you these contracts, but you have the full legal responsibility for whatever they sign you into. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter, and in today's podcast, we speak to Leanne Maskell. Uh, Leanne's a former model turned campaigner and lawyer. We talk about her life in the modeling industry, the challenges that she's had entering the industry, but then also the complicated legal world that surrounds it and how she's taken that interest, that personal knowledge and turned it around into her own legal career. As we talk, we find there are some similarities between life as a model and life as a lawyer, uh, some of which might surprise you. The hearing. Leanne, thank you for welcoming us to your uh, incredible flat with the views extending over London. Uh, now, if this is the model lifestyle, uh, I, I think I'm in. Uh, you might have some uh, objections, as, as do probably many people. Uh, but thank you. And I've already hinted at why in some ways you're here, but not perhaps with others. So tell us a little bit about you and uh, your past experiences. Well, I'd say this is probably the retirement lifestyle of a model <laughs> um the law society lifestyle <laughs> um more like because so i have been modeling since i was 13 years old and then wow. i went to university in london and studied law and when i finished i kind of modeled all the way through um school and university didn't ever really enjoy it but was just kind of caught into it because people scout you off the street like my parents got me into it um so just kind of, it was something that I was doing. Finished university, carried on modelling, um, then had a full um, kind of experience of it where I just started questioning the industry and mm. why we had our laws and having studied law, began to intern at companies that I was modelling for and seeing contracts that I'd never seen before and mm. no other model had seen. Um, became very passionate about changing this and wrote a book about it to help um, models and basically everyone with an interest in modeling, especially people that maybe are getting scouted in the streets and their parents mainly, um, to go through mm. all of the contracts and what good looks like because there's no guidance out there for models. Well, that was a very short podcast. Thank you uh, for joining <laughs> You're us. You're welcome. Um, so well, let's go back and unpick some of those things. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not going to start with the modelling. I'm going to start with the law. Because you, you went to university in London. Mm-hmm. Um, why law? Why, from, uh, what, do you have a, a background in there? Is there some sort of personal interest? Um, well, my dad always wanted me to be a lawyer. <laughs> okay. But, uh, what was he doing? He was doing Is like computer doing? security in Russia, oh, like okay. very dramatic life. And not particularly, well, no, I'm not saying it's not legal, but right. it's uh, not, think, not professionally legal. <laughs> I think he always had to pay so much money to his lawyers that he was like, <laughs> I should have been a lawyer. Okay, um, that's a good reason. So yeah, and then I studied law at school and I really, oh. really loved it. I did really well in my A-levels, um, 100%. And um, so yeah, I just really, really loved studying it. I went to university because I wasn't really sure what else to do. Mm. Um, and it just seemed like a good job to do, a good um, degree to do. Mm. And yeah, and then once I graduated, I think studying law is very different from actually practicing law. And I think studying law, we, there was a, um, a third of people in my course dropped out in the first term. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which, where, where, which university were you at? Queen Mary. Okay. Um, so I think that it's just a very... Mm. It's something that sounds quite glamorous, but I was actually kind of not really even very present at my university. The first year I was scouted and I was kind of being dragged off on modelling jobs every day rather than mm. studying. And it's really difficult to actually get your head around the, all the theory of law and the mm. background. And 
Um, I'm a kind of more practical person. So when I graduated, I just spent a few years trying to figure out what to do, intern for a few companies. But okay. actually getting a training contract is so impossibly difficult anyway that I was just yeah. like, well, I'm going to do this, which people actually you know, want me and they're paying me lots of money to do right now. Good. And then I can go into law. Now, you're possibly, I think, the first person I've spoken to in probably 20 years <laughs> who has done an A-level in law. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm personally curious to know. <laughs> if it was a good uh, training ground for a degree in law? It's actually at a intern, um, sorry, an interview. Mm. One of the partners said to me, um, basically he knew a partner that any CV that had an A-level law in it, he just rejected immediately. And so what do you think about that? And I was like, oh, um, I didn't do very well in contract and criminal law at university, which I studied at school. Right. So I said, I think that in one way, it's what got me into law, and I really enjoyed studying at a school much more than university, really. Um, and it's just, it's kind of like the fun bits. It's just <laughs> kind of a law degree summarised into fun case studies and yeah. um, contracts, basically, but not in the very long-winded theoretical side of it. There's, mm. It's just quite understandable and digestible. Mm. And, yeah, so in this interview, I just said, um, I think that, it hindered me in a way because studying it meant that when I came to university I just skipped all the contract and criminal law lectures because I did really well in them and then I got a 2-2 <laughs> at the end of the year so I'm assuming that's why he asked. Um. <laughs> well that's very honest uh, and, and quite interesting yeah I, I, I've heard similar things not mm. so much not so much with uh, law firms but even universities yeah uh, not not favouring A-level mm. law um, uh, graduates, uh, I guess, uh, but quite yeah, quite interesting. Sorry, that's a brief aside, just for my benefit. I think uh, it is very interesting because it's, yeah. it's like why sh why should they reject people that have studied law? Well, How would you know that crazy. when you're 16 and you're studying law? Well, and, and similar to me, I studied law as you have because I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm. And now for me, that seems perfectly sensible. But actually, the majority of people, and I'm sure lots of people know this already, that the majority of people coming into training contracts actually don't have law degrees. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's world experience from doing other courses, which brings me round to your world experience <laughs> uh, in, in very much uh, many senses. The modelling came around at 13. Mm -hmm. Tell me how this happened. I can honestly say I don't think it's happened to me. <laughs> Um, well, when I was 13, my mum moved me and my brother to Cyprus. And then she said, kind of randomly, I've got you with a model agency. And I was being really badly bullied at the time. And I said, I don't want mm. to do modelling. Like, I was being bullied for being ugly, as a lot of models are, I think. Really? Yeah, a lot of them are, because they're kind of gawky teenagers that stand out from everyone. And yeah. you're kind of the weird one. Um, not very comfortable in your own skin. And yeah, my mum just was said, well, well, they've already got you a job, so you might as well do it. And then I went to um, this job and had these kind of people getting me changed. And it was very bizarre, mm. um, very, really bizarre. And, and I said, oh, what are you actually doing with these pictures? And they said, we're going to put them in Vogue in England and Paris. And I was like, oh, cool, I've heard of Vogue. Um, yeah, and that, so that was kind of how it started. And then the people that have like really badly bullied me in England, they said, oh, we've got Vogue and you're in Vogue. And I was like, no. Yeah, um, and then from there, my mum just kind of carried on booking me jobs, essentially, and being like, you've got a job today, and she tried to fit around school, um, but I just, I know not many models in Cyprus that mm. look like me, so, so I did quite well. Was your was your mum effectively your manager? Yeah, like a momager. <laughs> momager, okay, I like this. Um, and because and, I've, I've read your book, I'm going to talk about the book in a bit, but one of the 
huge issues that seems incredibly relevant is the the fact there's very little or no regulation around models generally Mm. but specifically those under age under 16 under 18 and as a 13 year old your mum was obviously there supporting you and and, Mm. um, let's politely say encouraging you uh, (laughs) pushing you in directions Uh, but the not everyone has that and not everyone has that experience um, or sort of aptitude in many ways Mm. to know how to deal with the responsibilities that come with it how how did you think not only did you cope but how did your mum cope with that I think my mum wasn't... I think that the problem is that a lot of parents don't understand what is or isn't right either. So that's why I think the book is quite helpful to say, on a shoot, you'll have people that will expect to be able to take your child into a room and get them naked. Mm. And these people are complete strangers. Mm. Like Just because they act like they should be able to do that doesn't mean that it's okay. And just because, like on my first shoot, I had two men that were getting me changed and I was like completely naked except for a thong and... Um, I was kind of like, oh, trying to cover myself up and they were just laughing at me and they were like, we don't care about your body, we're gay. And I was like, okay. So I was just kind of taught that from a really young age, which is like, it doesn't actually matter what you think. Like, you know, we're allowed to see your body, we don't care. Mm. And I think parents also on, even if you're on a job, you don't, it's quite hard for a parent to be like, excuse me, why are you taking my daughter? Because they're Mm. kind of just in the same sort of vulnerable situation where they don't know what is right or what is wrong. Mm. And I think as a parent, with your child doing modeling, a lot of them are quite enthusiastic about it. So they're kind of willing to accept what these other people that are, you know, industry experts, let's say, mm. are telling them. Yeah, and throughout the book, you make reference to various situations that have happened and situations where you say and advise and recommend that people take themselves out of it, sort of extricate mm. yourself. If you're not comfortable, mm-hmm. take yourself away from it. And I, I think what's so difficult and challenging is knowing what's the right side mm. and what's the wrong side of, of what's acceptable. And whether people, uh, most people naturally, I think, feel uncomfortable naked or semi-naked mm. uh, in, in a room full of strangers. But if you took yourself out of that situation every time, then you wouldn't be working, yeah. I presume. So where does, who, who, I know what you do in the book is to mm. inform people and advise people of where that benchmark is, but it's such a personal, subjective thing. How did you cope with that? I agree. I think it is a really subjective thing and really it can only be learned by experience, which is why I hope that just having something there that says, if you feel uncomfortable, that's your sign, really. Um, and it's that's really the whole problem with modelling is that it's all so kind of mm. arty and intangible that no one can really say, okay, if someone puts their hand on your arm, that's harassment. And it's the same with all sexual harassment, really. Yeah. But for me, I think I grew up just being very numb to my body I was completely completely desensitized to my body all the models that I know Mm. if you met them and I find it crazy now going into my office I'm like god I used to go to offices like this every day meet complete strangers that would tell me to get naked in the hallway and I would very happily do it because I didn't even register that my body was like a private thing Um, and then I've had lots of shoots I was quite lucky I think and in a way, because I was studying law, that was my kind of backstop. So every time that um, I felt uncomfortable, I always said, like, I didn't really want to shoot underwear and nudity because I was studying law. Um, and I might become a lawyer in the future. And I had the only way I left one agency that were really terrible to me for a good six months um, was because they were trying to force me to do like a um, really racy lingerie campaign. And I said, the, I was like, I can't do this job because I was like, I'm never going to be able to get a job in the future if I'm naked on a billboard. And um, 
they were just like, you're never going to be a lawyer anyway. And they were just really, really um, mean. And then I finally realized they, these people actually don't care about me. This is the first time I've said no and they just ignore it. Um, so, But most models don't have a law degree to fall back on so, to say, oh, I'm studying law. And it's really hard to find a reason to say no to someone that feels like they're entitled to something from you. Mm. Uh, I think we're going to pick up again that of line later but uh, before I do that how did you fit around most people struggle to, to do a law degree anyway how did you fit around modeling with that with going to school uh, and then now uh, going into the world of work how, how did those um, things work together I don't know I have ADHD so I think that's a helpful <laughs> part okay. of it I think definitely now I'm a bit older and look back and I'm like mm. wait that's how I kind of managed to do all of this at the same time because I think when you have ADHD your brain sort of this like complicated map that Mm. other people they think in like linear lines and I'm kind of like we can do a lot of this stuff I just wake up at four o'clock in the morning study then go to work and then come back and it's really quite helpful having that intense energy (laughs) Um, and that's kind of what I think helped me um, cope in this strange way Mm. and and, um, you talk about mental health as well and having that uh, routine Mm. can be really helpful but I, I, I was struggling to again reconcile how you could have a routine when not knowing actually from day to day Mm -hmm. where you might be sent. And it sounds like with the agencies in particular, uh, people are held, held, uh, (laughs) uh, not hostage, but they're they're together in houses, they live together. Yeah, (laughs) they're held hostage. And and feel like, yeah, probably feels (laughs) like that. And uh, and, and the night before receive an email which just Mm. sends them off, well, tomorrow you're doing this. Mm -hmm. And it could be in the UK, it could be in London, it could be anywhere around Mm -hmm. the world. Yep. And you pick up your bag and you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you fit a routine? Uh, most <laughs> lawyers don't have this issue, uh, as <laughs> yeah. far as I know. Some do, uh, but most lawyers don't have that. Did you manage that easily? No. <laughs> um, I became very depressed. <laughs> okay. Um, in the head. Sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. But I'm, like, very happy to talk about it because I think it's really... I think a recent survey for lawyers showed that one in 15 was suicidal in the yeah. month before being surveyed, junior lawyers division. That's right. Um, <laughs> I do mental health law now um, and policy, so it's something that I'm quite passionate about. But when I was at university and modelling, I found it very difficult because I had this kind of agency that scouted me, asked me to join them, but to lose weight. And I said no. And then they said, well, if you don't do it, the woman that scouted me, should, I'm going to be fired. So I tried to do it. And then these people would call me up every day and be like, tomorrow you've got this shoot at this random address of like mm. a, a private photographer. Um, you have to be there. And I'd be like, oh, I have to go to university actually. And my booker actually studied law at Queen Mary. Oh. And he was like, no, you don't need to go to that lecture. Like, that's fine. You sh- you go to this shoot and I would just go to these men's houses instead um, when they wouldn't even use the pictures. And mm. that's what was so crazy about it. So. I feel like modeling is like having your soul kidnapped. Like it's like, although you're still obviously human, like Mm. someone else has got your soul. They can be like, you go and do this right now. You're doing this. And that was really hard for me to cope with. When you're modeling, you have to ask for permission to book off any time. So even on the weekend, you'd have to ask them, can I please book off like Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. so that I can go for lunch? (laughs) And you have to give a reason why. Um, It's such a bizarre... Especially when you consider these people are self-employed, supposedly, mm. and the whole aspect of being self-employed is control. Um, so, yeah, I became very depressed whenever I didn't have something going on in the background. 
which is what led me to kind of go to Australia and write the book eventually and figure out things like a routine and writing, just doing the same thing every morning and how to carve out a routine, even though you have no idea what your day is going to hold. Mm. Unfortunately, you were lucky enough to be able to do that, whereas a lot of people, mm. not only in, in modeling, but in, in the legal profession, don't mm-hmm. have that opportunity. So yeah. it's, it's important to learn those things. And the fact that you're using that now as well in the work you're doing with the mm-hmm. Law Society, um, I think is well critical. You mentioned being self-employed, and I'm going to, again, uh, take this opportunity to talk about things from an employment law point of view, because mm. this oh, is what I, I do. really interesting. And it, it is interesting. And I had, I, I, was, I had no idea about how it all operated. And one of the things I'm struggling to deal with is this idea of a power of attorney. You talked about <laughs> having no control over your soul, but actually it's your diary, it's mm-hmm. your soul, it's your body, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's Everything. every facet of your life. How, explain to us how the, this, um, the power of attorney idea mm. works. You'll probably be able to give a very interesting insight because that's how I became quite interested in employment law. Um, once I sort of understood the concepts like power of attorney and what they meant, because when you're a model and when you join an agency, sometimes they don't even give you a tr- contract, but sometimes mm. they do. And I'll say, just sign up. They'll be like, this doesn't actually mean anything. And people have said to me, oh, these aren't binding anyway. I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. And I, w- I would just sign them. I'd be like, okay. I guess so. And I never really took them seriously, which is quite ironic considering I studied law, but I was always like, they're not going to, you know, they're so ridiculous. They say things like, if you leave the agency, then you can't work for another one within three months. And mm. I was like, are they really going to chase someone and take me to court for them not getting me any work? But then last year I joined an agency that proved that this whole power of attorney aspect, because, um, so I kind of learned... So the power of attorney, essentially, you sign a contract and say, I give this agency the power of attorney for all commercial contracts, Mm. basically. Mm. The terms of what it is differ, but essentially it's anything. Mm. So I saw one a couple of weeks ago that said any employment has to go through them, any any contract at Mm. all, which is obviously completely insane because then the model would have to call them up if she was like buying something from the shop. Yeah, Um, yeah. But they're in there. That's the lawyer instinct coming out. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they're written down. And um, and then what is even more interesting is it says, these contracts are completely one-sided, but it says, as a model, you retain the full legal responsibility. Mm. So they have the full power to enter you into any contract you want. They don't show you these contracts. You never get to see them, but you have the full legal responsibility for whatever they sign you into. Mm. So I had a message from a girl last week who's in Mexico and her agency signed her into a, a job that she didn't want to do. And then she was in hospital on, on the day that the job came in. She was like in the emergency room. And now they're making her pay the fees for the job because she I- didn't go. And and, you know, she, I said to her, don't pay it, you obviously... Well, I was like, it depends on the contract, because mm. like, you probably are liable. Yeah. But I was like, they can't force you to actively pay up, but what they can do is just take that money from her account, which is what will happen, and yeah. she'll now be in debt to the agency. Yeah, I, I, and I think this is what surprised me so much, that you don't see... You, you don't have any control over your finances either. Mm. Uh, you, you don't even get um, guaranteed income or anything. Yep. You are... <laughs> Uh, a hostage reviews the word already, mm-hmm. but you are a slave. You're a slave. It's slave tied labor. to the agency, and and if the agency does a great job for you, then obviously they get mm-hmm. quite a lot of money from it. But there's no control. Yeah, and there's, there's no, no transparency. Yeah, around what you see, what you get, mm-hmm. um, or have any control over it. I just find it so unbelievable <laughs> that this can even take place, yeah. and and that's again part of the reason why you've spent time thinking about this. And it's called the Model Manifesto. Uh, 
And it is a manifesto, mm. but how far can the manifesto be taken? Because there's a call to action saying this needs to be addressed on, mm-hmm. a, on a, certainly on a national scale, if not global. global scale. But how much power do the models themselves have over making that change? Well, I think that it comes down to society in, as a general. It's a quite a philosophical question. What I started doing when I was writing this book was making policies um, because I had quite a lot of people that were high up in the industry, I guess, owners of big agencies and mm. big famous photographers that helped, which is really, really kind mm. of them. I'm not mm. sure why exactly they helped, but they did help. I think because obviously they just didn't want it to come back on them. Um, and then I said, okay, well, if we've got all these people involved and like, here's the problem in the contract um, that the models don't see, because if you can solve that problem, then essentially mm. you can solve the underlying problems. Mm. And I was like, so when I interned at one of these companies I modeled for, I saw this contract that said the agency, oh, this is, and then when they're like, the agency is um, going to receive like, I think it was 1,200 pounds, but I'd always worked for a thousand pounds. And then I knew that the agency was taking 25% of that, but the agency was charging an extra 20% on this. And I said to the lawyer, I was like, you know, that I don't get this much money and even mm. do any of the mm. models that I work with her. And she was like, that's shocking. She was like, we thought we were paying commission, not that they were taking it from you. And we're like, yeah. And mm. so once I learned things like that, and all agencies charge mm. this commission, which mm. is, com- they take, it's double dipping. Yeah. Um, but no one does. And I expect my agency, they just said, oh, it's just what happens. And I was like, that's, that's not fair. Um, mm. So we've got that aspect. And then you've got the aspect of like how long they have to pay. So normally they'll pay within three months, if that. Mm. Um, but on the contract, when the one that I saw said, but you have to pay within 30 days. I was like, well, what's my agency doing with that money for two months then? Mm. Um, and then it also said that the pictures could be used online for six months only, which I'd never been told. So like last year when I had no money, I basically emailed them and I was like, oh, my pictures are on your website. But I said to my agency, I asked like the union equity to help me with this because actually what the website had done is they'd sold my picture or someone had got the pictures and they'd used it in their own kind of um, product, like lookbook. Right. So I saw it at casting. I was, like, I was like, "This is you haven't paid me for this man um, work. And anyway, I basically asked my agency for the contract and they refused to give it to me. Um, so these individual job contracts, and which is obviously completely insane. Mm. Um, and they just said, we're not allowed to give it to you. And then I just messaged the company and the lawyer because I knew the lawyer. And I was like, hello, I have all these problems. And then she sorted it out and they paid me money for usage. Yeah. But... But, no but, one would know that. And, and you're on your own here. You, yeah. Not many people have that experience or that skill set to be able to pursue no one would that. Know that. Possibly the time or inclination sometimes as well. Yeah. And is there an element of you setting yourself apart as being, uh, in speech marks, a trouble causer? Yes. Uh, could you get blacklisted? <laughs> yeah, I was last year <laughs> very badly. Um, so I think from the aspect of what can be done, I think that it takes basically everyone to understand Mm. that there are these contracts that you know society in general also to understand that modeling isn't this glamorous fun amazing job and you should sign any contract that's put in front of you and then the industry to change as a whole and Mm. the government to step in and make especially for children Mm. that are doing this job then from the aspect of being difficult so that's basically all models worst fear is being difficult and that's why we all have such terrible boundaries 
because if you say no to anything, then you get sent home. Um, I was sent home last year for saying no on a job for the first time ever, and mm. I was basically never booked again by that client. Mm. And my agency, my agent said, like, we're basically not going to book you any work anymore because you're a troublemaker. And I was like, fine, I, I'll leave. And I left, and I'd always been quite strong. I was, I think that I'm quite reasonable, like, and I've always been, you know, if not, there's one person that I know at the moment that she has some kind of problem and she's set up a website and an Instagram to take down the agency. And I was like, that's not how you do it. You just have to be yeah. reasonable. But um, so whenever I've been reasonable with agencies, normally they've been reasonable enough back. And if they weren't, I left. But I joined one agency last year that I thought would be incredible. It seemed like they're amazing. And within a week, they got me a thousand pounds in debt. That I Because normally I'd say, don't charge any of this debt to me. I don't, I'll pay for anything myself mm. if I want to, but mm. don't ever. Because I think if you say that at the start, then they know that it's a bit harder to than just racking up all this debt. They, and they just refused. They said, no, we've booked you on this photo shoot tomorrow. You have to pay 400 pounds for it. Um, and it's like, I don't want to pay £400 for this photo shoot. Um, and they just said, no, it's really important that you do it. And the same kind of pressure again. Right. And then after a week, I said, this is completely insane. No one has ever mm. done this to me before. Um, some speak to the director who sent me a statement and they charged me 5% interest on all of the things that they'd already charged me for. Just incredible. <laughs> so, well, it gets worse. So then I said, <laughs> I'm going to leave. Well, I kind of did a lot of research on this agency and found out they were owned by like a rich man in mm. America and... And they just looked very dodgy. So I was like, I need to leave. So, But I didn't really want them to figure out, well, you know, I don't think they even knew what they were doing mm. was illegal, which is essentially um, loaning money out because of the way that they were structured. And so I just said to them, look, I was speaking to my doctor. My doctor said I need to um, leave modelling straight away. I'm not well enough to do it anymore. I'm going to leave. And then they were like, you have signed a contract for a year, so you can't leave. <laughs> they were like, we're really sorry to hear this. You can sign um, this contract release form, mm. and which was essentially a non-disclosure agreement. And I said, I'm not going to sign this. I was like, I don't need to sign this. I was like, you've not, not even promoted me. Like, mm. I'm just going to leave. Um, and then they got a lawyer to email me every day for about three weeks until I signed it. Wow. <laughs> so and in the end, I just had to sign it because I was like, I'll be in the same position if I sign it or if I don't sign it, they can mm. still try and take me to court for whatever stupid reason they come up with. Mm. But the process of going to court would have just been so expensive and so stressful that it's not worth it. Yeah, I, I and, and the fact that you've already mentioned that lawyers are involved in this is, is embarrassing and, and <laughs> not helpful in any way because you've mentioned so many things already, uh, but, but one of them, obviously data protection issues, we know about mm -hmm. that. There's uh, litigation that you've mentioned. Uh, yes, signing contracts, but without the regulation in place, there's nothing to dictate how people should be acting. And one of the things you mentioned again is about how modeling agencies themselves, although they're considered as employment agencies, mm. then pretty much unregulated. There's mm -hmm. no, uh, th there's no um, government uh, initiative around this, it seems. There's no uh, database of what are considered to be good mm. or bad agencies. And I've read quite a lot in preparing to speak to you about what seem like shysters who do mm. hook people in, hoodwink mm -hmm. them with uh, the, the promise of a glamorous career with a bill of £2,000 uh, for, for photographs. Yeah. And that might be the last they ever hear from them. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then heckling, chasing, <laughs> sending uh, emails, sending letters, you need to pay this, you need mm. to pay this. And nobody has that experience to say no. And it's often parents with younger children yeah. as well, but not exclusively. You have this 
uh, sort of insight now from, from a legal point of view, which so very, very few people do. Mm. But people are still signing up to contracts. People aren't checking. People are, yeah. in the nicest way, gullible. Mm-hmm. How are you educating or, or trying to reach out to those models, those aspiring models? Uh, yes, through the book, you've got a website as well. Mm. What more can be done, not by you, but by <laughs> other people? Does the government need to get involved in this? For sure, yeah. But it's really interesting for me because when I the book was actually a blog post initially, and then it became obviously a much bigger thing. Um, and the last year has essentially been legal research and finding out all these laws mm-hmm. that I had no idea existed. And actually the regulation is not there as it should be, but there are laws there. For example... Um, one of the agency owners told me that if an agency has your money, they have to pay you within 10 working days. And I was like, I've mm. never heard this before. I was yeah. like, I've, I was like, oh, every model that I know gets paid in three months. Like, that's completely insane. He was like, nope, that's the law. And I was like, I've never heard of this law before in my life. And so the laws are there. They're just completely mm. ignored. And like with the agency I mentioned before, I reported them to like the fraud team, everyone I could before signing the NDA. Um, and, do you know what the fraud team said? They said, oh, um, they're only doing it to a few hundred models, so there's nothing we can do. Yeah. And I was like, so if I stab one person, does that mean that I won't go to prison, basically? Um, so I think the government needs to step mm. in and take action for models, but then you do pick up on a really good point about... So when I was writing the book, I did lots of surveys mm. and tried to reach out to different people affected by this, and I also spoke to the employment standards inspector agency who are meant to regulate agencies and they said our main problem is to do with these agencies you're talking about like the ones that are clearly scams and scam but it's interesting because it goes all the way to the top it's not just that but that's what you think of when you think of illegitimate model agencies and they said these people are actually based in different countries so like we can't do anything about it because Mm. they're they've set Mm. up in like the caribbean yeah which is quite interesting and they've they've basically hooked it up in a way that they can't be stopped and there was a couple of people that actually did kind of produce a blacklist of all these agencies to help people they had skips thrown in front of their front garden they had bricks thrown through their window death threats like all oh, such terrible terrible um harassment that was actually i was quite scared when i was writing the, my dad was like um mm. you're going to get killed by these people and essentially because these people make a lot of money um out of just conning people mm. it's a good business even having a mm. legitimate model agency if you're getting 45 percent of everyone and there's no cap on how many models you can have 45 mm. percent of everyone's work I posted a survey on this kind of parents um, website for models. Um, they like child, you know, people whose kids are probably never going to be models. And I was like, can anyone fill this in? I'm doing this thing to help. And then I got a reply saying, oh, I'm not going to help you because you're pretty and beautiful, um, pretty and clever. And I was like, okay, I'm just trying to help you, but don't worry about it. So I'll take the compliment. Uh, <laughs> But I think people don't really like. I'm really glad that I've made the book, and so it's there to help anyone that wants mm, help. Yeah. But people don't want to hear that actually yeah. your agency is a scam. They want to believe that they're going to be famous, and they want to believe in that glamour. And it, you don't have to scratch the surface too deep to find that it's actually not <laughs> what it appears to be. So it's been quite a lot in the news recently as well about uh, on the back of Me Too mm-hmm. mostly, but publications, photographers in particular, who have been well, had serious allegations made against them for um, exploitation, for inappropriate behaviour. And it's actually in those situations, the publications themselves or the uh, fashion houses that have taken action and stepped Mm. in. 
so Vogue, Condé Nast, uh, uh, obviously cover most of the mm. publications, it seems. Uh, is it a responsibility on them to filter this down through to the models themselves, to the agencies? Or are they happy just taking in the coin? I think the reaction to models issues that we've seen by many people is in response to events. So essentially it's PR. It's mm. not... Um, if you look at these codes of conduct, they very nicely say that models should be given dignity and respect and mm. um, have changing room, for example. But who's actually going to enforce that? Um, and so actually I met Condé Nast last week and went to meet a woman that is in charge of the code of conduct here in England, although it's created by Condé Nast International. And she was saying that they'd only had basically one person get in touch about this code. Because I said, have you seen a difference? And she said, mm. well, we've seen, had one person get in touch and they weren't even a model. Um, the model was fine. Wow. And I said, well, how would, it, how would anyone get in touch anyway? And she said, oh, well, it's on the call sheet and on the contract, my kind of email. And I said, how, like models don't get their contract, first of all, all the call sheet. <laughs> We're not even sent like the kind of information mm. about the shoot. All we get sent is the name of the client and the address and the time and that's it um, maybe sometimes how much we're getting paid but not really even that and if especially if you're working for like condo nast it's normally not even any money anyway so is that right yeah yeah vogue and a tarot like the cover of vogue is 75 pounds i think like all high oh. fashion magazines don't pay anything which wow. is mind-blowing and i only found out six months after working for a high fashion agency that forced mm. me to lose weight for six months and be this kind of high fashion model that is very much not me and mm. I, uh, they finally got me work for like id and i said how much is this being paid and they said this time it's being paid like a hundred pounds or something because they're like it's being sponsored but normally they don't pay anything <laughs> i was like why would anyone do this job then um well, that's a very good question <laughs> yeah and i guess by that point i was fully brainwashed into mm. it but when I met with Condé Nast, I, um, she showed me the call sheet and then I wrote onto it and it just said like, these pictures can't be shared anywhere, um, see the code of conduct and then it said, this is the email address mm. to get in touch with the representative and then I just rewrote it. I was like, if you, if models, if you have any problems, like please um, get in touch, like if we keep everything confidential, we really welcome feedback mm. and like that's the way to yeah. get feedback if you really want feedback but then it comes yeah. into the question, I guess it's the same in all employment, what do you do if someone gets sexually harassed on a shoot? Who's there to enforce these codes? Mm. And I think it comes down to a really hard question where it's basically everyone's kind of responsibility to treat models, but just everyone on the sheet mm. with respect. So with the policies that I wrote, I wrote one for clients, one for um, model agencies and one for models, because I think it's really important that everyone takes responsibility because models are not always perfect either. and it's really important that they all kind of accept like oh this is an actual job like there's money changing hands and we all have to treat each other with respect mm. and clients like Condé Nast they'll hire famous photographers and they hire them for their talent they don't hire them because they think they're going to harass the models yeah. but um it comes down to essentially employment law and who's liable for that to, to, to a certain extent but like you say employment law is distinct from this because we're talking about self-employment we're talking about contractors and and you're right having one of the things that came out was this idea of the duty of care mm -hmm. where is it uh who owes who a duty of care and it seems that there is no real yeah duty uh certainly legal duty flowing mm. through any of these contracts uh, which which just surprised me and i was also drawn to the similarities between modeling 
and uh, the legal profession. <laughs> really? Bear with me. Um, and, and you talk again extensively in the book about this well, mental health you've mentioned, but rejection. Mm-hmm. And anyone that's trying to get into the profession, <laughs> there's a lot of people who want to get into there. Mm. There aren't that many jobs. Similarities again. Mm. Uh, but how did you and how do you deal with this idea of rejection? Because people are going through the uh, application process to get into mm. legal jobs. Now you're working at the law side at the moment. But that's a competitive job you're going for. Mm. Um, any sort of role within the legal industry is in demand. Yeah, There are a lot of people out there with law degrees, with GDLs, with mm. uh, LPCs even, uh, and now potentially sort of widening the gates even more. But how do you deal with that sense of rejection? And do you think your modelling has actually given yes. you some more <laughs> resilience to that? A hundred percent. Like, I was rejected from something quite recently and... It seemed quite a big deal at the time, but then I was like, I'll be fine. I was yeah. like, if it's not this, then it'll be something else. And I think, and I thought probably the people, no, this is before I started my work now, but I was like, if the people thought that I wasn't right for this training contract, mm. then they know better than me. And mm. like, they'll be able, like, they're, they're probably right. Like, I probably wouldn't be happy there. And you do develop this really good resilience because I was talking to a friend about it and I said, as a model, like I've had been you're on option for jobs so mm. it's a really frustrating way of living your life it's like mm. you know when you're waiting to hear back about an interview and you're at the final stage every day yeah. of your life yeah. every day you have options you might be an option for a job for 10 grand tomorrow which you'll never get and they will option lots of different models and mm. then they just won't even let them know it's like been going for a job interview and not yeah. even hearing back yeah um so when I was going through this, I became, it was really difficult um, because I just would internalize all of this. And especially, it was more that I grew a really good resistance to it. And I was like, I don't care if those people don't like me. I don't care. And luckily, I've never wanted to do modeling particularly much. So I've never <laughs> been that concerned when I've been rigid. It's more just, for me, it was like more particularly fun jobs that I would mm. have really loved to do. Like there was a Harry Potter job that I was an option for filming at the Harry Potter studios and it was like 10 grand and I was an option for that and flew back early from Australia for it and oh, no. didn't get it. <laughs> and I told everyone that I was shooting in the Harry Potter um, campaign and didn't get it. And like, but then I was like, you, it's so like uh, up and down that you mm. realize there'll be another job tomorrow. You'll be mm. an option for a different job mm. and eventually you'll get one. But I have found transitioning from modeling into kind of normal jobs incredibly hard because I think with modeling you do have that constant kind of opportunity Mm -hmm. but when I graduated from university I became so depressed about getting a job and like the training contract applications just looked so enormously huge and pointless that I just thought there was no point in even applying and I think I was right because I think the only way that you really get to the end of even um, application is if you know someone and it's a really corrupt industry and I dated someone from Cambridge who was a lawyer and their processes is like they say to the students what do you want to do he said I want to be a lawyer and they hooked him up with a partner at a big law firm and he went end of the day right down this application got through to the final stage and I think it's really it is essentially like an old boys club and like Mm. if you know someone there you can get in and people don't realize that and it's really it makes me really really angry because I just see so many people that are really badly exploited mm. um, in the name of hoping to become lawyers. Like a, a one assessment day that I went to, half of the people there were paralegals mm. and they'd been rejected the year before. And I was like, this company probably just rejects people, gets them to work as paralegals for like 20 grand a year and then maybe gives them a contract at the end or gets rid of them. But Yeah, the carrot on a stick's not an unusual. Yeah. 
Yeah, and when they rejected me, they said, would you like to do paralegaling? And I was like, no. And have you, because uh, you work in the law side at the moment, so what, what is it that you're doing there? Um, so I am a policy advisor for immigration law and mental health law. So is this a research role? Is this working with the profession? How does it, how does it work? It's really interesting and it's been a learning experience for me. So when I was writing the book, I became really interested in like campaigning and policy and helping exploited people essentially. And I've always had a really strong interest in law because part of the reason that I didn't become a solicitor was just because it all seemed so depressing. Um, (laughs) And I didn't really want to give my life up to mean people Um, and work so hard in the hope of like becoming a partner one day and just really giving away your soul but I guess I was doing that with modeling so um it works out the same but I was always really passionate about like helping people in law like friends of mine that had gone into it and were working Mm. all night and were really incredibly stressed out Mm. um so then when this job came up at the Law Society, it was involving in policy and campaigning, influencing legislation. I thought it would be a really good change from modelling because it had all become so entwined and personal. And when you asked what I'm going to do next from models, I was like, I don't want to do it. I was like, I feel like I've done everything I can, like, because it becomes like such an onerous burden on you. Um, and yeah, I was so amazed and happy that the Law Society hired me. Um, well, and you kind of picked two more relevant topics for the moment, uh, yeah. immigration and uh, mental health. This, yeah. is, this well, is really where the Law Society should be, at uh, sort of the cutting edge. Yeah, they asked me to provide some writing and I sent them the book. <laughs> and so this the, um, was the o- uh, overseas chapter and visas chapter for immigration and then see the last chapter then for mental health. Um, so I think my background in going into it has been very kind of unique, but I think it's brought something quite interesting because I just see things in quite a different way mm. where, you know, with the book, I was like, mm. this is an idea, we're going to do this. And I just did it. Um, and going into the Law Society, we all, so the Law Society have got lots of different policy areas and we actually do so much work for solicitors that people don't know about because it's so deeply hidden behind all the bureaucracy that's really, really quite interesting because once you start talking to people about all the things we do they're like wow this is amazing but we're just not very good at communicating that um and what i do so i have two committees of immigration lawyers and mental health lawyers and they're like the top top experts in their field which was very daunting for me coming into the job um as a model you read the book on this (laughs) yeah the book came out when i started the job and it was quite intense because um it was it quite heavily publicised in the media. So it was on the cover of the Times, like on the first week that I started, and one of my committee chairs, she messaged me and said... I presume um, you didn't get paid for that. I no, they didn't get paid for anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the committee chair was like, I've just seen you on the news. And she was like, I wasn't sure if it was you, but um, I've just seen you on TV. And so it's been really interesting, like, transition. Mm. But these people, we work together basically whenever any government consultations come out. Um, so obviously right now Brexit and then mental health was a huge, huge, mm. huge amount of work to be done. And I find it really incredibly interesting how the government are making laws and how we can influence that and how, especially the Law Society, they really mm. do a good job of protecting solicitors and the profession in general. And we put a lot, there's a lot of people working really hard to make sure that, for example, with immigration, um, the visa application uploading services don't work essentially yeah. they're privately contracted out so we've done a lot of work on that and making that better for solicitors and gathering all of this evidence together and presenting it to the people in charge and if making a real change and kind of communicating mm. the messages from the profession to the people that are in charge well it sounds certainly 
very complementary to what you've been doing here with the model manifesto. And it sounds to me like you've got a lot more work to do, uh, yes. both at Society <laughs> and uh, pursuing this uh, campaign. Uh, the very best of luck. Uh, and you've suddenly got me interested. Um, and I've learned so much more than we've talked about. Nipple covers, I had no <laughs> idea about. Uh, and see-through thongs, um, I've not seen yet uh, down at Calvin Klein, but I'm going to have a look. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And uh, we'll go offline now and you can give me some more tips. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.